We acknowledge that you are the creator of all things. By you, all things came into being, specifically even through you, Christ, you are the person of the Godhead through whom all things were made. And apart from you, nothing came into being that has come into being. And we rejoice to acknowledge that you are the God of all people, tribes, nation, and tongues, and that there is salvation in no other name given among men under heaven by which we may be saved. You are indeed creator, and you are alone the one who redeems all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light and into the kingdom of your beloved son. We thank you for gathering us here this morning and giving us the privilege of doing that. Uh, we do thank you for ministries that you raise up throughout the world, um, every ministry that's faithful to your word, but, and then some that have a larger reach, and we do pray for the Samaritan's ministries, the Samaritan's purse, that uh, Lord, in as much as the gospel is faithfully presented, that you would work through it. And heaven will only tell the, the good things that you did uh, through this mercy ministry and to those who came to a saving knowledge of you through it. And so we ask you to bless your word and bless the efforts of those who are serving you. And now we ask you to bless your word among us this morning. Teach us, Holy Spirit, you are our teacher. Give us understanding. Help us who are your sheep to hear the voice of our Lord speak and prepare our hearts as we come to the table this morning to remember the death, the resurrection, the ascension, and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we're taking a break this morning from uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. We're actually going to take a break for at least this week, maybe a, a couple of weeks, and then we'll pick it up where we left off in chapter 5. This morning, I want to address the issue of how we can know that we have spiritual life. How can we know, in fact, that we are a Christian and that we are saved? Some of you are aware of a sermon that is floating around or that's been around on the internet for a while now. I actually don't remember when it was given. If you were to go on YouTube, it's called The Shocking Sermon. The Shocking Sermon. And it was given uh, by a name that many of you are familiar with, Paul Washer. And in giving this sermon, he was speaking to a large audience at a Southern Baptist uh, gathering, and this audience uh, consisted primarily of youth, Southern Baptist youth. And the reason it was called a shocking sermon is because in this sermon, he confronted the profession of many who were in the audience. Being a part of that convention, knowing the lives and the situation of many who were there and the type of churches and the gospel that they were identifying with, his burden, the burden of his heart was that many of them, while professing to know Christ and while being active to some degree in a religious denomination, in fact, did not have lives that bore out that testimony. And that was a great burden to his heart. The general context then of his audience was those who were in the habit of hearing a superficial gospel, and namely one where it required no repentance, merely at some point in your life, an acknowledgement of belief in Jesus. He states this. We have a, there's, a, there's a written form of this sermon. It's called Narrow Gate and Narrow Way, and so uh, there's some in the book nook for you, but this is from that uh, written form. It says this. I want you to know that when this is uh, him speaking to this in the sermon. 
I want you to know that when you take a look at American Christianity, it is based more on a godless culture than it is the word of God. So many young people and adults are deceived into believing that because they prayed a prayer one time in their life, they're going to heaven. He later says, They think, well, I am the same as most of the other in my youth group. I watch things I should not watch on television. I laugh about the very things that God hates. I wear clothing that is sensual. I talk like the world. I walk like the world. I love the music of the world. I love so much that is in the world, but bless God, I am a Christian. Why am I a Christian? Well, I don't know. I don't look any different from most of the other people in my church. Why am I a Christian? Because there was a time in my life when I prayed and asked Jesus to come into my heart. He later says that... From his perspective, and I think correctly, this is the greatest or one of the greatest heresies within the American evangelical and Protestant church. Namely, that salvation is merely an ascent at some point in life even to the gospel of Christ and that therefore secures one's eternal salvation. The text with which he was, or that he was uh, using as the foundation for his message was out of Matthew 7, one that we're familiar with, but particularly on this point in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, you will know them by their fruits. You will know them by their fruits. Now, there he's speaking specifically of false prophets or false teachers, but the principle is, of course, a biblical principle, a theme, namely, that the reality of spiritual life has an evidence or evidences itself in an individual's life, and that is, therefore, that evidence, fruit. And you will know someone by what their life produces, what their life uh, gives testimony to. And identifying this fruit, or before he made that statement, or you'll know them by their fruit, he first said this, the gate is wide, Jesus did. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. So the reality is that not only of Jesus' words there in Matthew 7, but throughout the history of Israel and throughout the history of the church, there are those who give some kind of acknowledgement of the gospel, who have some kind of attachment to the church, but are in fact outside of an experience of the saving grace of God. Many think they have the fruit of salvation, but they are deceived. So the question is then, what is the fruit of salvation? What is the fruit of salvation? What is the essence of what it means to share in the life of God through Christ by the Holy Spirit? How do we, in fact, know? Well, there are many answers that could be given to this. And, in fact, there are, in one sense, many fruits of salvation. There is repentance of sin. There is faith. There is love for the brethren. There is walking in the path of righteousness. However, at the core, there is one fruit that stands as a pillar and a foundation stone of them all, out of which those things flow. There is an essential element of saving faith that is the core reality that belongs to regeneration. However, before we identify that, what that fruit is, some of you may have something in your mind already. Let's consider some things that are often thought to be at the core of assurance or the reality of spiritual life that, in fact, are not. Now, in this list, and I'll go through this first part briefly, uh, these are things that should be true of every believer's life, but they aren't necessarily certainties that somebody has been regenerated or that they have actually experienced the saving grace of God, that they have actually 
trusted in Christ and repented of their sin. Now, they aren't listed up here. If you notice in your bulletin, there was a sheet of paper. It was handed out. This is actually a piece of homework uh, that I give out sometimes in counseling when it's appropriate. Uh, And it essentially is a way to think through or a person to evaluate where they are spiritually, whether in fact they've had uh, a saving experience with Christ. They have a saving faith. They've truly trusted in him. Uh, As it was noted in that handout, this is a borrowed list. Uh, It's scattered throughout a lot of writings. This one is a collected uh, list that, if some of you know, it's in the back of a MacArthur Study Bible. Uh, But again, I'm reading through Jonathan Edwards' Religious Affections, and uh, it's the same list uh, could be drawn from that as well. But nonetheless, let me give you a few. These are then, for our first point, in how do we determine what it means to be saved, Uh, These are wrong or inconclusive evidences of salvation or spiritual life. They, again, are things that will be a part of a genuine believer's life, but they don't necessarily uh, give absolute testimony to the reality of a person's salvation. The first is visible morality. Visible morality. And I'm, again, just only going to mention some of these very briefly because I want to move on to the end. Uh, we could, for an example of that, look at Luke chapter 8, if, or excuse me, Luke chapter 18. If you'll remember, that was the testimony of the Pharisee and the publican standing in the temple. And Jesus is actually given a parable about a fair, uh, Pharisee and a publican in the temple. And he says the Pharisee was looking uh, at this publican, this one who was uh, a tax collector, Uh, Off in the distance and as the Pharisee compared where he was in his spiritual life and where this obvious sinner was He offers a prayer to God in the temple in which he thanks God for his superior Religious life his superior spiritual life his life of righteousness. He says I thank you that I am not like other people swindlers unjust adulterers or even like this tax collector in other words I am not unrighteous I live an upstanding and a moral life. And then he talks about his religious commitment. I fast twice a week and I pay tithes of all that I get. Do you remember the parable, the, fair, the, 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 uh, the, uh, the tax collector, the publican, excuse me, or excuse me, the tax collector was standing at some distance away and was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And what does Jesus say after that? This man went home justified, right, rather than the other. In other words, it was the one who acknowledged their sin, who was in fact saved, who was counted righteous according to God's grace. It was not the one whose life was morally outstanding. And so it is possible, the simple point is, to have a very moral life, to have a very religious life, and yet to be outside of a saving knowledge of God. So morality isn't it. Intellectual knowledge Well, the Pharisees would stand in place there as well. But if we look at the nation itself, who was a nation, the nation of Israel, who had received the promises, who had received the covenants of God, who considered themselves to be the teachers of God's will and God's ways, and yet they were strangers to the God of the covenant that they gave uh, an outward credence to. And he says in Romans 2.17, if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law. 
and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth. In other words, you are a well-informed people. You are a knowledgeable people. Your leaders are knowledgeable. You have what is, in fact, the word of God and the teaching of God and the revelation of God. You, in fact, have that teaching and understand it to such a degree that you presume to instruct others and to teach them about the way that is right and the way that is wrong and how to know the God who is. So there's, there is knowledge He goes on to say, And you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? He goes on and basically says, Your life does not conform to the things that you're teaching. And in fact, it is not merely the knowledge. It is not merely the having of the law. It is not merely the having of the promises and the the having of the covenant that makes one truly a participant in the grace of God. It is not a Jew who is one outwardly, he says, but one who is one inwardly. By the Spirit, not by the letter. That is then, in fact, the, the warning that knowing about God, we could put that over into the Christian church, knowing about Jesus, knowing intellectually about what the gospel is and who Christ is, does not affirm that one is, in fact, a participant in all of those glorious truths and those glorious realities. What about religious involvement? Religious involvement. Somebody can be very involved in religion and religious practice and, in fact, be outside of a saving knowledge of God. Now, if someone is a Christian, they are committed to the body. They are, in fact, servants and should be serving in the body. But that, in and of itself, does not affirm that one is a believer. Now, the text there is Matthew chapter 25. That's the parable of the virgins, the ten virgins. Five were foolish and five were wise. In a nutshell, that is an illustration then that there were many who were claiming to be waiting for the Messiah and to be true participants in that case of the wedding party, but in fact they weren't. They had no internal change, and so when the bridegroom came, five of them fell up short. Five were allowed in, five fell short, five were saved, five were not. We could add to that what will also take us into the next one, Matthew 7, we're familiar with those words. Many say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And he'll say, depart from me, I never knew you. And yet they confess him as Lord. He's looking at that point, anticipating a future event where they're standing before him, who is the judge of the living and the dead. And they acknowledge at some level that they understood him as Lord in a Christian sense, even though he's saying that before the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit. But he's looking forward to that day. And he says, they had some knowledge of me as Lord. They had some involvement. And yet I'll say to them, I never knew you. I never savingly knew you. So there can be religious involvement, active ministry, even, and this one may surprise you, conviction of sin. Even conviction of sin. Being convicted of sin does not prove that someone has actually has the right conviction of sin, for one. Or that that means that they have, in fact, that they in fact hate that sin. Uh, the quintessential example of that is Judas. Judas and Peter in Matthew, the end of Matthew 26 and the beginning of Matthew 27, stand as really two illustrations of what Paul would say to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 when he says there is a, and you're familiar with this, a godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. A godly sorrow leads to death. 
and, or excuse me, a worldly sorrow leads to death, and a godly sorrow leads to life. And the life is by a zeal for righteousness, a transformation that pursues a path of obedience to God. And so here's two examples. Peter, as you'll remember, at the end of Matthew 26, denied the Lord, and yet he was broken. He went out and he wept bitterly. And as the story goes, he returned to the Lord. We'll look at that later. But Judas felt conviction as well. It says that Judas, realizing what he had done, and he saw that he'd been condemned in verse 3, he felt remorse. He had an emotional reaction, a conviction of what he had done. He returned the 30 pieces, a kind of a type of repentance, at least a changing in wanting to undo his actions. And he threw the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, and he says this, listen, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. And so Judas fully owned his sin. He felt remorse for his sin. He sought to make restitution for his sin. He gave full confession to the innocence of Christ and his own guilt. And yet Judas went out and hung himself and is defined in Scripture by the Lord himself as a son of perdition in John 17. So conviction of sin, even feeling bad about sin, and I would say that a lot of the feeling bad about sin in the church and even in the lives of us as Christians is a worldly sorrow, not a godly sorrow. We generally feel more bad or feel worse about the consequences, what it says about us, the shame, than we do about having offended the Lord. But nonetheless, the point here merely is that we can feel conviction of sin. That doesn't prove that someone is, in fact, regenerate and a believer. And finally, there is a time of decision. And that was really along the lines of what Paul Washer was mostly concerned about, at least in that sermon, and preachers throughout the ages. And that is that there is a time of decision, a time in which there is a real sincere experience of an emotional reaction to the truth of the gospel. And this is a well-familiar theme. What's listed there is Luke chapter 8. I'll mention it out of Matthew 13. And that is the parable of the sower. Listen to this. One on whom the seed was sown in rocky places. This is the man who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Receives the word with joy. That is to say he understood the message that that message and his supposed participation in it produced an emotional reaction that's here described as joy. Joy. And then it says, Yet he has no firm root in himself, is only temporary, and when affliction and persecution arises because of the word, immediately falls away. And then the one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the word, and it becomes unfruitful. In each of those, there is indication of a time of decision, a time in which there was even an emotional reaction to the word, an emotional response to the message of God's kingdom and God's saving grace in Christ. And yet, it ultimately, for various reasons, became unfruitful, and that individual was, in fact, not saved outside of God's saving grace. So if we were to put that all together, and we could even add some more, but visible morality, knowledge in terms of doctrine, we would say religious involvement, church activity, active ministry, conviction of sin, and time of decision uh, are not evidences that one is in fact saved and regenerate. 
they would be a part of somebody who is saved, except for the time of decision. Uh, salvation is assured to an individual by the ongoing fruit in their life, uh, not because of a moment. That may or may not have been the time of salvation, uh, but some worry about that, I say. Uh, you know, I can't remember the great moment. I don't have this, this, this thing I can mark on the calendar, and I'm doubtful of my salvation. And the encouragement would be, don't be. The reality is, is do you see trust in Christ today? Do you see a desire to follow him today? There is no need to have a moment on the calendar. Uh, interestingly, uh, as you know, some who grew up in certain environments uh, have a Bible and they're given it at the time that they profess faith, sometimes usually as a very young child, and they write their name in the Bible. And they're even told that if you doubt, if you doubt your salvation, then you are actually sinning against God because you are questioning his grace and his promises. You might be in danger of calling God a liar or unfaithful if you question your salvation. And so they don't, even though they live a godless life. The most extreme form of that, uh, of easy believism, comes out of uh, really one, one person, Zane Hodges. But even goes so far to say, and he represents more of the extreme side of this, even goes so far as to say that somebody, if they made a decision at one point in their life and they gave adherence intellectually to the gospel and yet later become an atheist and deny God altogether, that that person is still saved because God is faithful to his promises. That's the position that he holds. If those things are not then assurances of salvation by themselves, what is the essence of salvation? And this is point number two then. What is the essence of salvation in spiritual life? Well, as I noted, there's many essential elements to spiritual life. Repentance from sin, faith in Christ, hunger for scripture, spiritual humility, separation from the world, desire and devotion to God's glory, self-denying obedience to Christ and his word, biblical prayer, a unique love for other Christians, and the list could go on. These are all parts of what it means to be saved. But while all of these are indispensable and necessary, there is yet something even more fundamental, more basic and more essential that lies at the heart of it all. You imagine what it is? It's this. Simple. It's love for Christ. It's love for Christ. It's love for God. Love for God is the essence of spiritual life. The essence of what it means to share in the life of God. It is the sum of God's requirement for man. It is the lack of a love for God outside of all of those other things then that would demonstrate that somebody has not yet come to know him or at least know him in truth. If you'll remember that Jesus spoke to the, what were revealed as the apostate Jewish leaders, at the core of their problem was this. He says in John chapter 5, verse 42, he says this. Do you remember? You do not have the love of God within yourself. Why can you not hear me? Why, when you read scriptures, do you not see that these reveal me? He says, it is because you do not have the love of God in yourself. And in that context, he goes on to say, the fact that you do not have the love of God in yourself means that you do not try to receive glory from the one and only true God, but you receive glory from one another, and that satisfies you. That's enough. But he identifies the core of the problem that you do not have the love of God in yourself. He later says in John 8, 42, he says, if God were your father, can you finish? You would love me. 
If God were your father, you would love me. So love for me would be the evidence that you, in fact, know God's covenant, that you, in fact, are a participant in God's grace. Jesus goes even further, and he says this in Matthew chapter 10. If anyone loves father or mother or son or daughter more than me, then he is not worthy of me, that he's not worthy of me. In other words, the love for Christ then and the reality of knowing him must be in a love for him that surpasses every other human relationship by far, so much by far that he could compare it with the word hate. Obviously, we are to love our children and we are to honor our parents. That's not his point. He is to say that if it comes down to a contest between the two, there is no contest for the true believer. The true believer loves Christ supremely. Paul told the church at Corinth this, If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema. More positively, he ends his letter to the church at Ephesus with this description of true believers in Ephesians 6, 24. Grace be with all of them, and listen to how he describes them, that love the Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. If you have a King James Version, it says insincerity, who have a sincere love for Christ. That's how he identifies them. And this has always been the essence of true religion and the knowledge of God, is that there is a love for him. If you well or we well remember the way that Jesus summed up the entirety of the Old Testament. Right? What is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is if you, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That is the greatest commandment. If we had that, guess what? We wouldn't need the Mosaic Law and all the stipulations. We wouldn't need any of it. As a matter of fact, after adding that the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, he says, on these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. Everything depends... Everything in the Old Testament, everything about the covenant depends or it can be boiled down at its core, at its essence to this, to love God and to love those who bear his image, essentially. So this has always been the essence of true religion. And the amazing shift in the new covenant, however, is this, that the revelation of Christ, that command to love God is transferred to be love Christ, love me. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 14, when Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, he is directly assuming that same religious devotion that God called the people of Israel to show, love me and keep my commandments, teach your children along the way, and so on and so forth. That is now taken on to Christ where he himself could stand in that place with the the, uh, the confidence of his divine nature and to say, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So the command of Deuteronomy 6.5 is essentially transferred to Jesus. And the command to love God and obey his commandments is now to love Jesus and obey his commandments, which are from the Father. There's Trinitarian glory there. But the central foundation of this love, however, is not something that wells up within us. It is, in fact, from God. And so we don't separate this from, well, the testimony of all, all of Scripture, but 1 John 4.10, and this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, there is a divine love that's prior to our love. Our love is subsequent to the love that God has set on us in Christ from all eternity, which Paul said 
in 2 Timothy 1. And we read this, I think somewhere John did in Ephesians 1. So the love of God then, we want to make clear as we would go here, is not some kind of personal virtue. It is, in fact, a spiritual fruit that is the product of God's prior work. It's not a personal virtue. It is a spiritual fruit. It is the consequence of the experience of and participation in God's sovereign and eternal love to his own in Christ through redemption. So why John's words there in 1 John 4.10 refer first to the Father. Every work of God, God does as a trinity in his triunity. The Father and the Son work in perfect harmony for you. Uh, if you like theological terms, that's the inseparable operations of God. And that simply means to say, or that simply says that everything God does, he does as a triunity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, acting as one God. And so there it is, that God, the Father, planned, Christ accomplished, the Spirit applied, But each person is loved for his work in redemption, and there is a particular love for him, the Son who took on flesh and suffered for us, and who hung on a tree, who bore our sins, who rose from the grave, and who paid the price that set us free from the condemnation we justly deserve. There's a particular love for Christ, and that's what marks a Christian. And this love for Christ is inseparable from saving faith. It is a a necessary part of our Justification are being declared righteous in Christ by faith. If someone is justified, it's a biblical term, so we'll use that. If someone is justified, it means that they are accounted, they are declared righteous in Christ because of who he is and the work that he finished. And if somebody is justified, then they are being sanctified presently. They are sanctified, set apart, but then they're in the process of becoming more like Christ. And at the essence of that sanctification is this reality of spiritual life, namely love for the Lord Jesus Christ. So if one is justified by faith, that justifying faith necessarily shows forth in love for Jesus. Listen to this quote. This is from an old author some of you may be familiar with, uh, J.C. Ryle. He says it well. He says pretty much everything well. Uh, But here he says this. A faith of devils, a mere intellectual faith, a man may have without love. But, not that, but it's not that faith which saves. Love cannot usurp the office of faith. It cannot justify. It does not join the soul to Christ. It cannot bring pre- peace to the conscience. But where there is real justifying faith in Christ, there will always be heart love to Christ. And he that is really forgiven is the man who will really love. Luke 7 is... The passage with the woman, if you remember, she wept while Jesus was at dinner with Simon the Pharisee, and he says, he who's been forgiven much, loves much. She's been forgiven little, loves little. He ends with this, if a man has not loved to Christ, you may be sure he has no faith. So if you do not love Christ at the heart of your spiritual life, then it is because you have no sense of debt to him. And it's that simple. If we do not love Christ, it's because we have no sense of debt to him and we have no sense of the reality of having the debt that we owe forgiven. Forgiven because of his suffering. So Paul said to the Galatians in Galatians 2.20, he lives his life by faith. Some of you could finish it. And the son of God 
who loved me and gave himself up for me. And so that is at the heart of what it means to be saved and to have spiritual life is that there is at the core of our identity, there is at the, of the essence of our inner life and of our thoughts and our experience and our walk with the Lord and our profession of the gospel, there is a love for Christ, a love for Christ. Ryle says again, where there is real justifying faith in Christ, there will always be heart of Christ. But then that opens up another question. Okay, what does that mean then to love Christ? What is the fruit of loving Christ? How do I know if I love Christ? And so let's look thirdly at the fruits of sincere love. I'll try to get through these. But before I say what the fruit of sincere love is, let me note what is not the proof of sincere love. And I'll boil it down to this, emotional experience, feelings. Feelings and emotional experience is not the core of what it means to have love for Christ. This is in large measure, not exclusively, but in large measure, the sum total of the world's understanding of love. It's why couples get divorced. I don't love them anymore. I did love them at one point. Now I don't really love them. I kind of love someone else, or I just love me enough to not want the commitments anymore of a marriage. I don't feel love for this spouse or this other person anymore. It's an emotional understanding of love. In this sense, people say that they fall in and out of love. There's many other ways that that demonstrates, but that's a core one. Sadly, however, this also describes of what so much of popular Christianity is based on, almost exclusively feelings. Worship is essentially gauged or determined by how the worship and the music made me feel, how close I felt to God in the experience. I had a class one time with, uh, anyway, someone, this wasn't the Master Seminary. Uh, it was somewhere else, another school. But anyway, uh, had a class. This person was a music leader, and this music leader, uh, he was thankfully the odd person in this class, but uh, he was describing about how important it was to him to use smoke and lights and these other elements because they're creating an experience of worship. We want to help people come into the presence of God. As a matter of fact, that is why much of contemporary services focus on music, music, or some other form, in the case of this brother, of some emotional manipulation. And the goal is this. The goal of a lot of worship is this. I want to feel God. That's what's behind a lot of, and I'll put a broad brush here, but of the charismatic movement. We have dear brothers and sisters in the charismatic movement. There are extreme parts that deny the gospel, and there are parts where we would just disagree on the work of the Spirit. But I will say this, that there is a tendency within that movement as a whole, or that theology as a whole, to equate spirituality and worship with how much I felt God or how I had some exuberant expression. In the most ridiculous form, some of you may remember holy laughter and those kind of things. But the idea is this, even within the professing church sometimes, this idea of love and love for God and the experience is, is, can really be boiled down to some kind of emotional experience that's manipulated through multimedia, music, or just creative storytelling. And so this is disoriented. And people feel disconnected when they try God 
And, but all of a sudden, the feelings go away. And therefore, then God isn't near. Now, I want to say on this point, before I would go on, and we may have to finish this later. I so intended to get through this. But let me, let me make this point. That love for Christ is not to say that love for Christ is emotionless. We're not robots. As a matter of fact, some of the great points, we won't go through them all, but in Edwards, in, in distinguishing between what was a genuine experience of God internally, he defines as a religious affection. What is it that marks it off from others? Or is it even legitimate to say that our love for Christ should have a strong emotional reaction? And extremely powerful arguments, among which are this, that yes, Jesus Christ was passionate in his love for the Father and his love for others. Paul, you can't read his letters and be overwhelmed by what an emotionally vulnerable and expressive man of God he was. Oh, Corinthians, my heart is open wide to you. If I love you the more, would you love me the less? He was extremely passionate. When we think of the saints that are in heaven and we think of the raptured joy and worship and delight that they have in beholding the face of the risen Christ unhindered, that is the fullest expression of what we as believers should feel. There should be an emotional response. We're not saying it's emotionless. That's not the point here. It is to say that the reality of our emotions or the reality of our love for Christ is not dependent on emotions which can come and go. It contains true spiritual affections of love, contain emotions, but they are emotions in response to the truth of Christ. And here is the key. They are an emotional experience, an internal reaction in response to the truth of Christ. And here's the key. That moves the will to worship and obedience, to conformity to Christ. And that's the key. They're not an end within themselves. And that is the point. That when there is a true response internally in reaction to Christ, it moves upon the will to compel the individual to faith and to holiness that transforms the believer into the likeness of Christ's character and drives the believer to be faithful to him. When we relegate love to the vague emotion of love, no matter how strong, and we make that emotion the end in itself, it actually simply becomes something self-serving. Christ and the gospel becomes a means to me feeling an emotional experience. Rather than me responding to the truth of Christ and having any kind of emotional reaction that drives me to bring glory to him in my life, to be conformed to his holiness and so forth. So the vague emotion of love, no matter how strong, is self-serving if the experience is an end in itself. By contrast, true spiritual affections desire more and more of the knowledge of Christ. And here I will quote from Edwards. He says this, captures this well. Gracious affections, the higher they are raised and the more, spirit, the more is a spiritual appetite and longing of soul after spiritual attainments increased. On the contrary... False affections rest satisfied in themselves. Rest satisfied in themselves. So then what is the evidence of true and sincere love? Well, let me give just a few. How do we know then if our love is legitimate? It's not merely an experience of feeling. It's not merely a love of doctrine. It's not merely a love of Christian things. It is, in fact, a love of Christ that is produced by the Holy Spirit in the heart of a believer. Well, first is this. 
These are in no particular order. First, is conviction, confession, and repentance from heart and mind sins. Conviction, confession, and repentance from heart and mind sins. That's an evidence of sincere love for Christ. We are to love God, again, as you remember, with all of our, and this again we could say love Christ, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And this is where the battle for love for Christ takes place for the Christian, internally. It takes place internally within the believer. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11... We covered that a while back. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lust which wage war against the soul. Which wage war against the soul. That is where the battle takes place. That's where the battle takes place for a believer. Second Corinthians, we perfect holiness because of the promises of God, cleansing ourselves in spirit and flesh of all sin, so that we could pursue holiness. Galatians 5.17, just to give you some examples. We walk by the Spirit. The Spirit sets its desire against the flesh and the flesh against the Spirit so that we cannot do the things that we please. There is an internal battle within the believer to yield out of love for Christ to the way of righteousness. And so we feel sin there. We feel sin when we love Christ. We feel sin internally before we even do anything or even if it never gets to an external action by merely having the wrong attitude, by merely having a wrong motive in the things that we do. So when there is a true love of Christ, there is a sensitivity to give our whole self to him and when we fail to do that, there is the conviction and the confession of sin. Uh, one goes on to say, this is borrowing from Edwards again, the more a true saint loves God with a gracious love, the more he desires to love him and the more uneasy he is at his want of love for him. Have you ever felt conviction simply because you don't love Christ enough? That you wish you loved him more or that you see what you offer to him is unworthy of him, sincere though it may be? Hopefully if you're a believer, you've had that experience at some point. And the more he hates sin, this is the one who loves him. The more he hates sin and the more he wants to hate it and lament that he has so much remaining love to it. And the more he mourns for sin and the more he longs to mourn for sin and the more his heart is broke and the more he desires that it should be broke and the more he thirsts and longs after God and holiness and the more he longs to, God, longs to long and breathe out his very soul in longings after God. So when there is a love for God that is sincere... It so captures and ravishes the soul and is so much a part of the essence of our spiritual life and identity in Christ that there is a humbling that comes merely by the fact that we don't offer to him everything that he deserves or that we don't hate sin as we ought to hate sin and we don't mourn as we ought to mourn and we don't obey as we ought to obey. So true love for God is not content with mere external obedience is the idea. Mere external obedience, but longs to bring every thought, every motive, and every desire into obedience to Christ and laments that this is not so. And let me add one more point on this. Uh, the heart that longs to know the love of Christ and to love him more knows that this requires that we deal with sin at its root. That we deal with sin at its root. 
And in fact, one of the great burdens of the heart of a believer is when we don't have fellowship with God or there's sin in our life that we're battling with sometimes that gives us a sense of a break in that fellowship with God. And in fact, and this is just a footnote, that actually is itself a sign. If you're struggling with sin, if you're struggling with a sense of distance from God, if you're struggling with a sense of a lack of the nearness and the fellowship that your soul longs for, that actually is a positive sign. You should struggle, and we should wrestle, and we should be humbled, but it's also a positive sign that, in fact, you do know Christ because we can't miss something we haven't had, for one. You can't miss fellowship with Christ if you haven't had fellowship with Christ. You can't feel the break that sin brings until you've experienced the joy that righteousness brings and obedience brings. So if you find yourself in that place, and you can think of this even as we come to the Lord's table, let that be an encouragement to keep fighting, an encouragement that God is, in fact, working in your life. He is, in fact, extending mercy to you by humbling you, by letting you feel the wretchedness and letting you wrestle with that thing so that you might be more perfected in faith and in your love to him. This more scary, the, scary, the more scary. The scariest part is when somebody can have sin and they don't feel a break in fellowship. If you don't feel any distinction internally in your relationship with God, whether you're sin or walking or doing something you know, outwardly right or even regardless of how you are inwardly, then that's actually a scary thought. I know in terms of counseling, uh, if I could just give a brief illustration here, in terms of counseling, uh, the one that is the most, and we know this in just in our Christian dealings with one another, but the one that is the most concerning to me in terms of their spiritual life is the one that comes in who seems to be the least, who feels the least need in counseling to receive any instruction or feels the least bothered by their sin. Sometimes somebody come in and they're just, they may be doing lousy in their walk, but they feel lousy. <laughs> and they are, they're determined to fight, stumbling though they may be along the way. But that's actually an encouraging sign. It's a perseverance. It's a pressing on. It's a desire to be reconciled to God in terms of fellowship even with him. But the one that comes in and has very little conviction of sin, who seems to be very little bothered by their own part in it, that's the one that's bothersome. You wonder where they are. But more than this is that the heart that longs to know God and to know the love of Christ and to love him more knows that this requires that we deal with sin at its root and is willing to pursue that. So John 14, 21, Jesus says this. Jesus says that the one who loves me will keep my commandments and he will be loved by my father, if you remember this. And the one who is loved by his father, the one who keeps his commandments, Jesus says that is the one to whom I will Disclose myself, manifest myself, show myself. Some of you have different translations. That's the idea of the term. I'll show, I will reveal myself to that person. Uh, Edwards caught this well. We'll move on, but this, he's got some really helpful thoughts here. Edwards says this on that. So that it is necessary that men should part with their dearest iniquities, which are as their right hand and right eyes, Sins that most easily beset them and which they are most exposed to by their natural inclinations, evil customs, and particular circumstances. Here's the line that I think is, grasp this. No more will Christ reveal his love to us and no more do we then reveal our love to Christ than till we part with our dearest lust 
until we are brought to comply with the most difficult duties. And those that have the greatest, or we'll leave it there, that are brought to comply with the most difficult duties. If you want to know the love of Christ and to know more of the love of Christ, then you have to ask yourself, what am I willing to part with or what am I not willing to part with? And do I love Christ? Is there anything in the heart that I would hold on to and rather have than Christ himself in fellowship with him? So we would ask ourselves, a mature believer, though they may externally sin less, is more broken over the sin that remains in them and they feel the corruption even of their best thoughts and deeds. Thus a mature love can be praised externally and admired externally while internally confessing and repenting to the Lord at the more profound level. Why? Because there is a love for Christ, a love for Christ that wants to give everything to him that understands and responds to the great love we've received in Christ and feels conviction uh, over that. Well, I didn't get to the rest of it, so we'll have to finish it, and it's worthy of finishing, but here we'll leave as we come into the table. When we come to the Lord's table, we are reminded that we stand in grace. We stand in grace. We come examining ourselves. Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11 that we examine ourselves to make sure that we come in a worthy manner. He's saying this to the church. The church needs to examine herself to make sure she comes, and that church consists of individual believers. That means each of us also standing here individually. We make sure that we come, and, and here's the distinction, and I mentioned this earlier uh, in our membership class as we talked about the Lord's table, is that when we come to the Lord's table, we come as sinners. We come as sinners. Some, some feel that they have to be worthy enough to come to the Lord's table, worthy enough before they can take the elements. But that needs to be qualified. We don't come to the Lord's table any more than we come to Christ with some measure of worthiness that then brings his response to us of blessing. We come broken with a broken and a contrite heart. This is the one to whom I will look. We come acknowledging our sin and that Christ has made atonement for our sin, that he has paid the penalty for our sin. We come knowing that we have no deserts to come. We have have no deserving right to come. We come only because Christ has given us the right, because he has made us able to come. Even when we pray to God, we don't pray because we have some right to pray to God. We pray to God because God has clothed us in the righteousness of Christ, and we come with the righteousness of Christ into the presence of God and pray to him as Father. We always come with Christ. We always come trusting in Christ. We always come clothed in the righteousness of Christ that has been given to us through faith. On the other hand, in acknowledging that we are sinners and that we come rejoicing in God's grace, we also come with a sincere faith, which means this. That means if we come to the table with any known sin that we're holding on to, with any secret lust that we know is there and the Lord knows though nobody else may know, if we come with any kind of broken relationship that we're not willing to be reconciled in, if we come with any unbelief that we're not willing to resolve, then we come to the Lord in an unworthy manner. We don't come to the table and understand grace so that we might feel more comfortable with sin. We come to the table and understand grace so that we might be more resilient against sin and to love him 
and to follow him. But we do so in his power and we do so in the power of grace. But that is the heart that Paul is warning about in 1 Corinthians 11, that for this many, he says, if we will, he says, if we had judged the body rightly, uh, then we would not be experiencing the Lord's discipline of weakness and sickness and a number sleep and so forth. So when we come, know that you come as a sinner. Know that we come to remember the Lord's grace. Know that there is forgiveness for everyone who trusts in Christ. Know that as a believer, the Lord is always ready to restore us to fellowship with repentance and faith, but not if we're holding on to sin. So let's come with a heart that is ready to recommit ourselves as well to him who died and rose again and is returning. So before we do that, does anybody need, we're, we're still doing the packaged elements, prepackaged. Does anybody need them? If you do, just raise your hand and George will hand them out. Anybody, everybody got one? Good. Well, then I'll give you just a few moments to pray, just fellowship with the Lord and rejoice in who he is and talk to, pray to him, fellowship. And then after you've had a few moments to do that, I'll open us in a word of prayer and then we'll take the elements together. Our Father, we thank you for grace. It's all of grace. We sing amazing grace because we who know our sin and our unworthiness in and of ourselves delight in the worthiness of our Savior, the perfect righteousness of our Savior, the perfect glory of him who died and rose again for us, the perfect wonder of that mercy which has not only forgiven us of our sin which is not only the mercy in which we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins through his blood, but is such an extravagant mercy that we have the promise not only of being without sin, but having from you that marvelous, eternal, infinite love that says you will delight in showing us mercy and kindness for all eternity in Christ. To know that those who are in the Son, you love as you love the Son. Lord, help us to understand these truths even as we come here. And in understanding them and in understanding the marvel and the wonder of grace, that we would be committed to walk with you. That we would be committed to battle sin. And oh Lord, how deceiving sin can be how powerful of a pull it can have on our affections and our hearts in that moment. But we ask you to remind us even of what we celebrate here, that we are citizens of a kingdom yet to come, that we are sons and daughters of God in Christ. We are heirs of a glorious inheritance. And help us then to do battle with sin and to walk in the obedience in which we can have joy and fellowship with you, and know your blessing. Produce these things in us to the glory of the only one who deserves glory, the glory of Christ, to the glory of God. And these things we pray in Jesus' name, amen.